From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode 17, Tearing Down the Great Firewall. Hello, one and all. Happy New Year. We are kicking off this year in the second season of Great Power Podcast with a guest that I am elated to speak with and really excited to share with each of you. For you China watchers out there, he will be very familiar to you. And for even for those of you who don't follow China as closely, perhaps you've heard of him before. His name is Matt Pottinger. He was a senior national security aide in the Trump administration. He was deputy national security advisor. And he has a really interesting history with China, which we'll get into in a minute. Before we do that, let's set the scene here. Think back to Ronald Reagan's 1987 speech where he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, the Berlin Wall. Two years later, the Berlin Wall fell, and that was the beginning of the end for the Soviets. But something else also happened in 1989. It was the Tiananmen Square crackdown in China. Something that often goes underappreciated is the technology that the CCP utilized to track down those protesters at Tiananmen Square. They used security cameras that were manufactured and supplied by American and British telecom companies. And then a mere five or six years later, the World Bank was funding projects to supply those exact same security camera companies to Tibet, highly repressed region in China where the party has been clamping down on the religious freedom and expression of Tibetan Buddhists for decades. And this irony is striking. The very same year that the Berlin Wall fell, the Great Firewall in China was running quite efficiently and effectively. 1989 is this really interesting turning point in American grand strategy with the waning of the Soviet threat and the waxing of the threat from Beijing, but a threat that unfortunately we didn't see for what it was, a threat that we ignored and eventually helped to build up over the next few years. And we're at this point now where in the wake of COVID-19, we as Americans are feeling the brunt of how the party controls information. It's not just this human rights thing inside of China. The Chinese Communist Party concealed COVID-19, and they cared more about stopping information about the virus than stopping the virus itself. And people died, not just Chinese people, but people all over the world, including Americans. So how do we combat that? How do we address the party's penchant to control information at all costs? This is a conversation 
that really matters for the United States as we practice great power competition and refine our strategy with China. And I cannot think of a better person to talk to about this than Matt for a few reasons. Number one, he is one of the foremost individuals who is responsible for the shift in America's China policy that we saw during the Trump administration away from cooperation towards competition. Matt was previously a journalist in China during the SARS viral outbreak in 2003-2004 and reported on the ground. And then when COVID hit, he was deputy national security advisor in the White House. So his vantage point with how the party deals with information as censorship is really unparalleled. I have deep respect for his analysis, for his service, and I am really pleased to share this conversation with each of you. We caught up during the Christmas break, uh, just at the end of December, because he was traveling and I was at home. The audio quality isn't quite what it (laughs) normally is, so I appreciate your forbearance. And with that, let's get into it. Okay. Hey, Matt, it is a real pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thanks for joining. Yeah, good to, good to be talking with you. Good stuff. All right. So, hey, uh, we are talking today about the Chinese Communist Party's relationship to information broadly, and more specifically, how they handle that inside of China's borders with their own people. Maybe to start, before we get into the specifics of the Great Firewall and what that means for the United States, Hmm. I wonder if we can start big, because you co-wrote a piece recently that was pretty big. It was with uh, David Fife and Matthew Johnson, and Hmm. uh, the title of this piece in Foreign Affairs was Xi Jinping in his own words, and the premise of it was we're not really listening closely enough to what the party is saying. Maybe we can start with this, just at a big level. What are we missing when it comes to our assessment of what the CCP is out to accomplish right now? What, what is Xi Jinping saying in his own words? Yeah, so like you, like you mentioned, Matt Johnson, who's a historian, a great reader of Chinese government and Chinese modern politics, and also David Fife who, like me, is a former China-based reporter, journalist for the Wall Street Journal, and then Dave and I worked together in government. He was at the State Department when I was working on the National Security Council staff at the White House. Anyway, we we, uh, teamed up to write this piece where we went through and looked at quite a number of internal-facing speeches, by which I mean Xi Jinping Often his most important speeches, the ones that serve as real guidance for his own party, they have to receive guidance somehow. And we found that if you read back to major addresses that Xi Jinping gives to the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, the speeches that he gives that usually are never translated into English, many of them are kept secret for months or even years after he gives them, but then eventually they appear in places like uh, Seeking Truth magazine, which is, uh, you know, sort of the party's theoretical journal and so forth. And and if if you read these speeches, you find that they are a pretty good indicator. Over the past 10 years, they've been a pretty good indicator for where Xi Jinping's steering the country and where he's steering his own politics. 
we look at a number of those that, and, and quote a number of passages from major addresses he's given over the last 10 years that we think turned out to have given very good guidance to his thinking and to his actions. So what is, what is he really saying, right? He's, he uh, is talking about the ideology under his rule and, and how, the, how that ideology is, has, has remained the same in many respects, but also how it's changed in important ways from leader to leader and, and under his rule. You see how implacably hostile to the United States he is, how, how sympathetic he is to Russia, you find a good sense of where the party's role is being reasserted after this period of, of reform and opening, Gaiga Kaifang under Deng Xiaoping. You know, those four decades where China went from being an a economic basket case, uh, a place where tens of millions of people were starving to death under Mao Zedong, or millions had been purged or uh, killed in societal violence under the Cultural Revolution. Deng Xiaoping comes in. He actually takes steps to try to uh, normalize the party's role uh, to, to make the system a little bit more consensus-driven, to impose certain rules. And, and, and also, Deng Xiaoping strengthened the role of the bureaucracy as the government bureaucracy is distinct uh, from the party bureaucracy, you know, trying to train up a, a technocratic government and, and also to have the government step a little bit out of the way of its people, you know, to allow the economy to, to grow a lighter touch by the central government when it comes to the economy. Those are some of the characteristics of, of China under Deng Xiaoping during reform and opening. Xi Jinping is very clearly steering the clock back in the sense that he believes that the party needs to have a much firmer grip on uh, the Chinese economy and on Chinese society, not just its politics, but many, many other aspects, the culture, the ideology, information. And so we look at some of those early speeches that he gave in 2012, at the end of the year, right after he had become the senior most member of the Chinese Communist Party, and, and he talks about the Soviet Union. He talks about the, why did the Soviet Union collapse? And he gives his take. And, and one of the, the lessons that he draws from that is that the party was not strong enough in terms of all of those aspects, ideology. It did not control what he calls the tools of dictatorship. He's critical of Gorbachev, but he's, he's also critical of earlier Soviet leaders implicitly, like Khrushchev for having had the temerity to criticize predecessors, Lenin and Stalin. So Xi Jinping sends this very clear message about how the party, and specifically the top leader of the party, which was now himself, has to control what he calls the tools of dictatorship. And that means controlling really all aspects of society, controlling the military, the security apparatus, controlling learning, schools, ensuring that Western concepts which he views as hostile and very dangerous, need to be eliminated and rolled back. The idea of constitutionalism and the rule of law, the idea of Western concepts of what a journalist's role in society is, you name it. It is a much more orthodox, in some respects, a pure sort of Leninist interpretation of communist rule that we're seeing and Stalinist interpretation of 
we're seeing now under Xi Jinping as he begins his second decade in power. So the tools of dictatorship, there are so many different directions we could go in here, but I, I think the one that I want to spend the most time with you now is something that I, I gather you you witnessed firsthand when you were a reporter in China. Uh, and, and I want to, in a bit, I'm, I'm really keen to ask you about what you saw during the SARS outbreak in 2003, 2004, yeah. but more generally, the tools of dictatorship when it comes to controlling information, when it comes to controlling speech inside of China. Can we start at a really basic level here first? Yeah. Why is it that the Chinese Communist Party throughout its reign of China, but specifically now with Xi Jinping, why is it that they have this urge and, and this necessity to control speech and information to the level that they do? Yeah, you know, the Leninist movements have focused from the beginning, middle and end on the idea that information must be controlled, language must be controlled, because if you can control language and how people talk about concepts, you can control their thinking, and then you can control whole societies. And so censorship is a big part of that, but equally important to censorship is, is the idea of what do you amplify, right? What, what, what types of information do you make sure spread virally? <laughs> and um, I, I remember when I was working in the late 90s and early 2000s as a reporter in China, oftentimes it was through omission. It wasn't that the party had to lie outright by manufacturing facts, but by simply omitting context, they could create and shape narratives in very powerful ways that you would then hear reflected out on the street in every, you know, from everyday people. I remember being struck by how homogenous political viewpoints were even back in the 90s, which was a relatively much freer period for China than what they're experiencing today. It's powerful stuff. In fact, I think we are a bit naive in the West about how easy it is to manipulate people's thinking by promoting certain information and omitting other types of information. And of course, social media poses a very distinct dilemma. We, we, we thought social media was only going to be a problem for autocracies. It turns out, uh, it, it turns out it's, it's problematic for every form of government, but it also poses the problem that it can be manipulated by autocracies and that it gives them the ability to jump borders and influence the ways that people think in free societies. And we're seeing that now both in terms of ways that are homegrown social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and its various apps can be manipulated by Russian and, and Chinese trolls and, and bots and, uh, and slickly produced content that, that they inject and find ways to tweak algorithms or, or uh, exploit algorithms to get that stuff around. But then we also have the even more problematic problem of TikTok. It is a Chinese company that controls it. That Chinese company we know is heavily governed, regulated, and influenced by the Chinese Communist Party, according to Chinese reporting on that. So we're in a very strange moment right now <laughs> where you know the fastest growing media company 
in the United States is a Chinese company whose editor-in-chief is also the Communist Party secretary for that company, the parent company, TikTok. So anyway, it's fundamental. The control of, of language and information is fundamental to Leninist systems. It's fundamental to the Chinese Communist Party's rule. And it is something that they view as an opportunity to influence audiences overseas and back home in the United States. It's something that Xi Jinping has, has actually put significant money and resources into. It's, it's what he calls Hua Yuquan, which is discourse power. He talks a lot about China enhancing its discourse power by becoming a larger and larger presence in the information space in every country. So I'm, I'm curious here to get a little more specific. When you talk about discourse power and how the party has sought to leverage it within its own borders, well, we, we can go global in a second, but let's stick within China for now. One of the reasons I've been really looking forward to talking with you about this stuff, Matt, is your experiences are so unique. For the SARS outbreak, you were inside of China as a reporter getting scoops and, and finding sources and trying to get at the story in real time. And then when COVID hit, you were at a very senior level inside of the White House trying to figure out how to respond to this issue that was quickly metastasizing from an epidemic into a pandemic. Looking at those two experiences side by side, from what you saw on the ground in China versus what you saw from your vantage point in the White House, what changed in the interim with how the party was leveraging discourse power to control the narrative of a public health crisis within its own borders? Yeah, well, I, you know, their early handling of COVID was quite similar to their early handling of SARS. When SARS emerged in late 2002 and was recognized as a new pathogen in early 2003, as it was making people sick in southern China first, then other parts of China, and then in, in several other countries where it spread. The first instinct of the party was to cover up the problem, just to deny that there was a significant problem, deny that there were cases spreading, particularly in northern China and in Beijing. It was a whistleblower, it was a Chinese PLA officer, general officer, and doctor, Jiang Yanyong who blew the whistle and alerted the world that contrary to what the Chinese government was reporting, there were in fact hundreds of cases in Beijing, hundreds that he was personally aware of because he was working it in the military hospital system in Beijing. And that was a very brave thing for him to have done because what it did was it, it alerted people at the World Health Organization and at the US CDC to ask more pointed questions of the Chinese government and to insist on, on uh, sending a, a team to Beijing to sort of investigate what was going on. Where things diverge is that uh, back then, the Chinese government did permit a, a WHO delegation to show up and start visiting hospitals, and they were able to really expose, and the leadership at the time of the WHO was much braver than it was just a few years ago when COVID began spreading. They were unable to get people in, and they really just took the Chinese government's word for it, unfortunately, which cost a lot of lives. But 
but back then they did. They showed up and they they traveled from hospital to hospital and they found brave people within the Chinese system, conscientious doctors and health providers who were sharing tips about where they should go and what hospitals they should be knocking on the door of and so forth. And after about 10 days of this or something, Beijing determined that they could no longer keep the lid on the scale of the of the outbreak, of the epidemic in mainland China. And so they they shifted gears. They they admitted that they had a serious problem. They fired the health minister of China. They fired the mayor of Beijing, which allowed Wang Qishan to, to get promoted. That was really, you know, if, if you look through history, most people who, uh, you know, a, a shocking number of people who become uh, senior leaders or, or leaders of their countries, you know, it starts with someone getting fired and, and then they're moving their way up. And, and that was true of Wang Qishan when he became the mayor of Beijing uh, as a result of the firing of his predecessor because of the SARS outbreak. And then they, then they took very significant steps to prevent the outbreak from spreading. They had lockdowns. <laughs> Those were you know, the early version of lockdowns. But, but we, the world lucked out because SARS was not as robust of a virus. It was not as adept at infecting people. It didn't have that lock and key, skeleton key that the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2 virus has, where, where it, is, it is the most shockingly efficient and effective spreader of any respiratory virus we've ever known about. That was not true of the, of the SARS virus back in 2003. And so really we lucked out because as the weather warmed up and as China did its lockdown, it did not continue spreading very effectively and it eventually burned out and uh, did not become endemic in human beings. It disappeared from the scene, except in laboratories where it leaked several times out of Chinese laboratories and other places. I think in Singapore and in Taiwan, there were accidental leaks of the SARS virus over the years as people were studying it as well. Maybe that was a premonition of what was to come in 2019 and early 2020 with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. It was interesting as you were talking about the SARS episode, I, I kept on seeing a lot of these parallels, not only with the whistleblower, you had uh, Li Wenliang, who was the, maybe the most prominent whistleblower inside of the system inside of China for COVID. Uh, but then you also had this similar about face in early 2020, there came a point where the party could no longer deny that something was happening. And then they finally switched their efforts from controlling the information about the virus to actually addressing the virus itself. But at this point, I, I wonder if we could start expanding the scope of this to look at China's efforts to control discourse globally here. But because what we also saw at that time was some maybe from my perspective, some ham-fisted propaganda of them saying the U.S. Army brought COVID to Wuhan, and they were testing this out with a lot of their diplomats all throughout the world. We saw some of their ambassadors th uh, throughout different African nations promulgating <laughs> yeah. the same narrative as well. Yeah, except uh, which... they, they didn't get their stories quite straight enough because they, uh, you know, depending on where Chinese ambassadors were, they, they claimed variously that COVID had emerged from several different places at once. <laughs> so, 
you know, it, 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 one of the claims was that it emerged from a U.S. Army laboratory, that it emerged spontaneously in Italy and spontaneously in India. And then they put forward a theory, as they called it, that in fact, it, this virus appeared wholly spontaneously in several geography, geographies simultaneously independent from one another. So yeah, they, they had a lot of trouble getting their story straight. But again, that's, that's not uncommon for Leninist systems as well. The idea is not to get the story straight. It's to muddy the waters and uh, gaslight people and, and to get them people to doubt the narratives that are a lot more credible about various things, and in this case, where this virus emerged from. So uh, yeah, we remember those days not so fondly. As funny as it is to talk about maybe some of the less than sleek efforts of, of the party's propaganda at the time, you're right. It's not necessarily to have a cogent narrative. It's to introduce confusion and doubt. And we saw the party go even further beyond that as well. We saw them try to have this charming offensive of being a net public health provider, especially throughout European capitals during this time. We also saw the party engage in some coercive diplomacy, particularly targeting Australia, first and foremost, when they introduced questions about the origin of the virus. Looking back on all of that, looking back on the party's efforts to control the narrative, not just about the virus, but about the Chinese Communist Party in the midst of COVID, how successful do you think that Xi Jinping has been in accomplishing what he's set out to do with maintaining not just the party's reputation, but his geopolitical objectives since 2019 and 2020? It's funny you know, the lie, a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on is, uh, was that a Mark Twainism? I think it was, <laughs> or was it, a, was it something Churchill picked up from reading Mark Twain? But anyway, it, it um, this lie made, made its way around the world quite a lot of times. So, you know, one of the lies that Beijing put forward early in the outbreak was information that it was feeding to the World Health Organization and, and other public health agencies around the world that the virus, first of all, was not efficient at spreading when they knew that that was untrue. The second really powerful and catastrophic lie that they told was that the virus, to the extent that it does spread, is spread only by symptomatic people, not by asymptomatic people. And that turned out to be the most important detail that the party consciously omitted from its reports to the WHO and which were then conveyed to the rest of the world. We know with certainty that they knew that that was not true now. There were very conscientious and brave doctors who were trying to get that word out, that the fact that the virus, in fact, that half of the cases at the time were being transmitted by asymptomatic patients, which is a major, uh, by the way, it's very unusual for a uh, respiratory virus. Uh, usually super, you, you know, the super spreader events for people who are highly symptomatic, producing a lot of virus, suffering from the, the symptoms, the coughs and, and, and all the rest of it from having a lot of virus replicating in their, uh, in their organs. 
But this one, the fact that half of the people were asymptomatic and were still able to spread the disease asymptomatically meant that this was going to be a very stealthy spreader. And therefore, all of the measures that Beijing was conveying and which the WHO continued to amplify was you just need to do fever checks, check people for symptoms for the syndrome of COVID in order to stop its spread. And in fact, half the cases were just sneaking by, which is why we ended up with a global pandemic that's killed many, many millions of people now. But in terms of his goals, look, the, the party's overarching goal at all times is to survive. Uh, it, its goal is to use any means necessary to try to insulate itself from criticism, shield itself, and deflect blame wherever it can. And in that sense, you know, Beijing did have a, a lot of success early on, but it's really caught up to it, as we saw so dramatically in, uh, in late November of this year, when Chinese people who were just fed up with, uh, with the, the rolling lockdowns across China, which were dangerous in their own right, people who were uh, dying in, in uh, fires and buildings like we saw in Urumqi and Xinjiang. It's not clear exactly what the circumstances were, but you know the, the, there was a lot of discussion at the time about how the fire department couldn't even get fire trucks close to the building because of police barricades and because because automobiles had run out of you know their batteries had run out so people couldn't move cars out of the way because no one had been in their cars for months you know that the lockdown had, in Urumqi had been underway for more than 100 days people were not allowed out on the streets people got fed up and they took to the streets in quite a number of cities around China and on college campuses around China and so Beijing has now shifted gears. It's a remarkable turn of events, by the way. Xi Jinping has been in power for a decade. I can't think of an example of where he has made a U-turn on one of his own personal signature policies like zero COVID and the zero COVID lockdowns. He abandoned that thing on a dime once he saw that people were taking to the streets, in some cases calling for him to step down. And now is is denying that COVID is even dangerous. We've seen the pictures of the body bags stacking up at morgues across uh, Beijing, and not one of those deaths is reflected in the official statistics for COVID. So, so in other words, you you have this remarkable situation now where everyone knows that he's a liar. Everyone knows the party's lying. A lot of people are going to know people who get very, very sick. People themselves are going to get sick. And a lot of people are going to die. And people are going to know that. People know when they lose when they lose uh, family members. And, and when those are not reflected it will it, in the official statistics and so forth, or when the care is inadequate in those hospital emergency rooms and ICUs, People know, and so they so, so it becomes a, a naked lie. It's it's and that breeds a certain cynicism about the leadership and and uh, the system that the, the leadership lives in and sustains. And so that could play out in unpredictable ways in the months and years ahead. So knowing that the party is lying and having that veil completely pulled back, this leads me to. The core question that I've been looking forward to speaking with you about, and, and I think this is a very appropriate note to begin concluding our conversation about, which is 
the Great Firewall. Now, the Great Firewall inside of China, technically, it's a very specific part of their censorship apparatus where they control the uh, Chinese netizens' access to internet outside of China. But taken more broadly, shorthand for the party's censorship apparatus. In the wake of COVID, what struck me so much was the lies led to the deaths of, as you say, millions of people, not just inside of China, but around the whole world, and including Americans. And the biggest conviction that I took away from that was that it's high time to start viewing the party's control of information, not just as a human rights issue or a free speech issue, but a national security issue. And something that I remember uh, hearing you say periodically near the end of 2021, either in testimony to Congress or in other pieces you've written for foreign affairs, uh, and we'll, we'll link to some of those pieces and testimonies in the, show, in the show notes, you talked about the importance of the firewall, of, of, of targeting the Great Firewall to make it easier for the people of China to circumvent these prohibitions that the party puts up so they can access the truth. And my question to you, Matt, as we conclude, is twofold. Number one, how easy is it to do that? Because we're, we're funding VPNs and, and, and other people-to-people technology, and we've been doing that for a while. But my question is, if we want to scale that up, how easy or how difficult is it to do that? And number two, how aggressive should we be with this? And I guess what I mean by that is, is this the type of thing where you envision the U.S. government taking covert action in the cyber domain? Is this something where you see we should be empowering technological startups or entities to have more funding for research? Like, how, how do you see this playing out practically? Well, look, the Great Firewall, in aggregate, it is formidable. But when you look at it up close, it's a series of bricks and bricks can be pulled loose. The technology has grown more sophisticated over time for surveillance, particularly with facial recognition and language recognition and algorithms that can sniff out things that might be problematic from the Chinese Communist Party's point of view. But ultimately, just like the Great Wall of China, these things can be uh, bypassed, undermined. People can break through and people are doing that every day using VPNs and and uh, and through you know creative communication with people outside of China, family members who are abroad. Look, I left government two years ago, and I can tell you that the U.S. government was doing very very little, very little to even attempt to overcome the Great Firewall. I think that there's a fatalism, bureaucratic inertia across the U.S. government. Look, the United States has got the best coders in the world. We've got a lot of very creative people, many of whom believe in our own founding principles and, and the ideas that people should be allowed to communicate with one another. And I think that we should be leveraging that through public-private partnerships, private sector companies that are willing, and more of them should be willing to engage in this kind of work now because so few American software companies are doing well in China. Most of them have been blocked out. The big giant platforms... It's really only Apple that is heavily dependent on China for its manufacturing and also as a market. Google and Facebook, Twitter, they're all banned. 
they're banned. They have to lose by getting involved in trying to help people around the world. It doesn't have to be targeted at China, but just in places where people, like people everywhere, want to be able to communicate with one another safely without fear that it's going to end up getting the, you know, the a knock on the door in the middle of the night and a guy in a white hazmat suit drags you out of your living room like it's been happening across China. So I think that this is not a insurmountable problem. In terms of some of the things that we can be doing about it, look, the Chinese diaspora, we've got hundreds of thousands of Chinese students at American universities still today. Why aren't we doing more to make it easier for them to actually enjoy the same freedoms in the United States that students from other countries who are visiting the United States enjoy? It's really only Chinese students who are fearful, even in our borders on our campuses, about being snooped on through their devices or through spies who are working for Chinese consulates and for the Chinese security apparatus on campuses. Why not, why, why not break down some of those obstacles here and in other countries where there's a Chinese diaspora. Um, th those people uh, have the opportunity to communicate regularly with relatives inside of China. I think we should be doing more. One, one idea that I put forward in, in one of those articles that you mentioned was the idea that people should get a freedom phone. If you have a, a cell phone, a smartphone that has Chinese government approved apps on them, that data is not safe. It's obvious that data is not safe, uh, uh, you know, from TikTok or or from WeChat. But if they have a second uh, smartphone that is not linked back to surveillance inside of China, people might be a little bit bolder about what they read and what they communicate. So anyway, it's there. There are all sorts of things that we could be doing if if we were making this more of a priority. Well, on the one hand, I'm discouraged by your words that there's very little that we're doing currently inside of government, although I can't say well, I'm surprised by that. Well, the good news is imagine if we were just, you know, doing something as opposed to nothing, right? Truly. Uh, you know, it's trial and error and it's a cat and mouse game and all, all the rest of it. But uh, we're, we're not even we're not even trying. This is an asymmetrically huge advantage that we have as a free society. And it, it's not something that we should be saying. We, we need to cooperate like we currently are with the Chinese communist regime. Implicitly, what we're doing is, is cooperating by saying, oh, yeah, we're, we don't want to make information available to people. We don't want people to be able to safely communicate outside of China's borders or even with one another inside of China's borders. This is crazy. This is crazy stuff. This should be one of our main efforts. And we're, we're, we're not even really trying yet. Gosh, I can't think of a better note to conclude this conversation on with the framing you just said. This is an asymmetric advantage for us. This is favorable turf for the United States to lean forward by being true to our own values and principles and ingenuity and creativity and make it easier for whether it's the diaspora here when, within our own borders, borders of friends and allies, partners, or even inside of China. We believe in the freedom of speech. We believe in the free flow of ideas. This is not favorable terrain for the party if we can really lean in. So I think this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you about this, Matt, and I'm grateful to you for sharing your time. So thanks so much for talking. Michael, thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.